and away we go. This is the word of the Lord. Beginning in verse 12, excuse me, beginning in verse 18. Did I say 12? Beginning in verse 18. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Gosh, that's so great. I'm so glad that you said that. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Verse 21, another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, yes, take as much time as you need, because that's very important. Follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. And we're going to end there this morning. Quite the statement, leave the dead to bury their dead. That's one of those just warm and fuzzy, feel-good statements that Jesus makes. Um, actually, probably considered one of the more difficult passages of text. If you're, if you're interested in trying to figure out what were the tough things that Jesus said, you'll find this statement right up there in the list, probably somewhere in the top ten. But it's actually with this very statement is where I want to begin today. Because as I was looking at this portion of the text, and here's the other thing that, that, that we value here as, um, as an eldership team, is teaching the whole of Scripture. We don't just pick and choose the parts that suit us the best, but there's something of such great value to actually go through the entire book to understand both the context, the background, but also, too, what is it saying from one to the next? And so we come across portions of text like this where it's like, oh, man, cuts across our grain a little bit. It makes us maybe slightly uncomfortable, but yet the reality is this is Scripture, and all of Scripture is breathed out by God, is what Timothy tells us, and is profitable for us, is it not? So there's profit for us in this portion of text. And um, so I want to actually just begin with this idea of let the dead bury their dead. Because I actually think that as I looked at it this week, there's something within that statement that really is the heart of what Jesus is going to get at and what I'd like to look at today. It's one of those all or nothing responses regarding the kingdom of God here in verse 22. It's harsh. It's matter of fact. It's black and white. There's none of that wiggle room, right? There's nothing in there. There's no margins. And it just seems like kind of downright mean and inconsiderate, doesn't it? It seems that way. It seems that way. But this is what I want you to remember as we begin, and this is, this is kind of how I'm going to open this morning, is that we're looking at this whole of Scripture here, looking at Matthew through a different lens. We're looking at it from the difference between the old and now the new, or the dead and now the alive. Jesus' ministry was a ministry of life, was it not? It's the, that's the undergirding message of all of the gospel, is that Jesus' ministry is one of true life, of real life, of life to be experienced. This was a pronouncement and a modeling of a new way to be human. Despite and in face of the kingdom of death that still exists on this earth and will continue to exist until Jesus returns, 
what we have, as I said a couple of weeks ago, two kingdoms that are colliding with one another in a rather violent and tumultuous way. And so we can't expect the things of the kingdom of God, the ways of the kingdom of God as we've been studying, the values, the purposes to resemble or to look anything like the kingdom of this present evil age, as Paul calls it. Not just the present age, but the present evil age. So such are the ways of the present age that they both are of and lead to death. And then, of course, the kingdom of God is leads to and is one of life. The labors, the efforts of a man or woman apart from Christ. Follow my thinking here. The labors and the efforts of those who are outside of Christ are labors of death. Because theirs is a kingdom of death. Jesus made it very clear, you are either in or you are out. We don't straddle the two, although sometimes we act as though we do. We live as though we might. But the reality is, is you are, if you are in Christ, you are in the kingdom of God. If you are outside of Christ, you are in the kingdom of this present age. So it's not both and, it's one or the other. So therefore... Those in the present age, those in the kingdom of this earth, their works, their acts, their efforts ultimately are acts unto death. Because why? The one whom they serve, whether knowingly or not, is the king, lowercase king, the king of death. Do you follow my logic? Satan rules over the present evil age. Those he has deceived, those who live outside of the kingdom of God, live under his rule. And therefore, everything that their hands are put towards ultimately lead to death. So Jesus' statement of let the dead bury their dead is a proclamation that he's about to show us again. This is one of those kingdom template moments here within Matthew where Jesus is giving us a description of what now is in light of what was. So let the dead bury their dead. Jesus is saying, listen, the efforts of my kingdom are ones of life. The works of my kingdom is a kingdom of, is, are works of life. Therefore, let those outside of my kingdom be about their own works, which are, of course, as I've labored over and over again to say. The works of those within God's kingdom are focused and given to an intent upon life itself. Not living, you know what I mean by that. I'm not saying like how we live our lives, but eternal life, eternity. As with many of the occurrences that we've seen in the book of Matthew, this is another one of those firsts with Jesus. As I just said a moment ago, it's like a kingdom template, template, and we saw that a lot in Matthew's chapter 5, 6, and 7, and even um, as we've labored to look at over the last couple of weeks as well. And in this verse, Jesus is speaking of the radical change of lifestyle, and even deeper than that, the change of priorities that following him must involve. Must, not ought to, but must. That's what Jesus is going to be about in this portion of the text. This is discipleship in the new creation, people of Capital City Church. This is what it means to be in the new creation. 
means that there is a radical change of priorities. To be in the kingdom of God, to be a disciple or a follower of Jesus, means that our priorities are radically changed. Radically changed for the reasons of what I said. And you might be going, yeah, why are you continuing to emphasize the same thing over and over again? Because I think of what I said a minute ago of how we live with both feet sometimes in one and in the other. We want to prioritize the things at this moment, perhaps, of this present age. When God, What God is saying is, no, you have been transferred. There's a radical reprioritization that's happened in your life. Now live in such a way. I was also thinking, too, in light of this, isn't it amazing how sometimes we will either downplay or even perhaps ignore some of these black and white statements that Jesus makes. They're uncomfortable. We don't like black and white, do we? A lot of times we don't. We want to find that, that, gray, that gray wiggle room because honestly, if we're, if we're really truly honest about our own hearts, the state of our heart from time to time is that we want to find the outer and define the outermost reaches, boundaries, if you will, of that gray area, just into the point of like, okay, where is sin now? But it's, and we like to try to find that because I think that's the inclination of the human heart. But Jesus makes these statements and they're very clear because the kingdom of God is one of clear boundaries. The kingdom of God is one of clear requirements. He doesn't mince words in regards to cost and price. Giving no room for our margins, you guys. Dean said it a couple of weeks ago. Within Christendom, there's the danger that there are some, when the road becomes too narrow, and Dean said it multiple times, and I thought it was really, really insightful, that the tendency is to want to just widen the road. We want to just widen the road. But weeks before that, as we talked about, the narrow and the wide. And what is it? It's those that are on the narrow. It's the, the narrow way is difficult. But the wide way is easy. And many come through. And I was thinking about this. This is an actual literal road in China. And I was telling one of the guys earlier before the meeting today, they've actually continued this road along the face of the cliff now with wooden planks. And you can go and you can walk this road and they'll tie you up to it. And it's like this little, this is what we're on, brothers and sisters. This is the daily life of the Christian walk. But what do we do? This is what we do. All right, I'm bringing my stuff with me. Here we go. I'm bringing my stuff with me. Have you seen those pictures of those, uh, is, it, is it, I think it's in India, where they are just on top of the bus, and people and things are just flowing out over the top of the bus. It's like that kind of thing. We want to take these things, these, this is our margins, you guys, and we want to take this, and we want to try now to traverse that narrow cliffside road that the Lord has called us to walk through. You can see the two are incongruent, Right? Jesus' pronouncement, I'm going to leave that up there, is that to follow him as a true disciple is radically different than what they've seen or known before because the essence of their being has changed as well. Theirs, too, is now a ministry of life. That statement, the essence of their being, we use the word ontological. The ontology of who we are 
has been changed. That's just a big word to basically say that deals with our being. It's of our essence as an individual. So this is an ontological statement. And it goes so, and, and, the, and the importance of that, it goes beyond this up here. And it goes deep into the truth of who we actually are. And so when Jesus makes these statements, he's making statements that are ontologically true. That the ways of my people are such and such and such. Not again, we hear that and we go like, I need to do this, I ought to do this, this is my checklist of things that should and should not be. But that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying these things are true because, and we go all the way back to what we've said probably 200 times over the last year from Colossians, that we have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. That's an ontological change in our existence. Do you guys understand what I'm, I'm just kind of saying the same thing? Okay. But it's really important, though, because, again, because what we have to do is we have to connect what we understand here with what we understand here. And that's a work of the Lord. We labor in that as well, but that's also its revelation. But we only receive revelation when we seek revelation, when we seek to understand the truth of Scripture. So let's get into it today. So Matthew provides us with two different examples of individuals who are drawn to discipleship. It's interesting. They, there's really very little, if anything at all, that we know about these two individuals that come forth. But yet they're drawn to discipleship. But they've not considered the cost or the price that they have to pay in order to follow Jesus. That's ultimately what Jesus is getting at with his two responses to each one of them. And I'm thinking of that as, as I was putting this together for today, is that not still what we run into all the time? People who are drawn to the teachings of Jesus, perhaps because of the morality of it, or perhaps because of what it perceives to be, I mean, hopefully they look at our lives and they desire what we exemplify. They're drawn to it, but yet they've not either thought through, perhaps, or understood the price that's required that you and I know that this life necessitates from us. We still run into these people all the time. And it's interesting too because it, this, the, the, what Matthew kind of paints this picture of is here's two individuals who have separated themselves from the crowd. We know that there's a crowd that follows Jesus and we see all throughout Jesus' ministry, the crowd gathers and Jesus retreats. And then the crowd will gather and Jesus retreats. And, and here's another example of this. We've just, remember now, we were in Matthew chapter eight last week and the different healings that Jesus went through. The leper, you remember that? The centurion servant and Jesus' stepmother. Stepmother? Mother-in-law. I don't know where that one came from. Oh, man. Stepmom. There's probably a joke in there somewhere, but we don't have time. Um, so remember where we came from, and now here we are, and then great crowds have gathered, and so Jesus retreats again, and Jesus tells his disciples, let's get the boat and let's go across. And we know what happens, and we'll see this soon, what happens when they go to cross to the other side as well. But here's two men from this crowd who have separated themselves, seemingly have made steps towards Jesus, but have not yet fully counted the cost of what it means, the price that we have to pay to follow him. We're not told where they come from, 
whether or not they even made the decision to follow Jesus. That's interesting. There's nothing in here that signifies that they made the choice to actually follow him, although we could probably deduce that they most likely did not, given Jesus' response to them. The first is the scribe, and this is what the scribe represents. The scribe represents earthly identities and earthly identification to know intimately and to be known by the world, to find our place within the world, within the earthly culture, within the present kingdom, right? You get this, we're using many different languages to communicate the same thing, to find perhaps comfort and a sense of belonging to. That's what the scribe here represents, an earthly identity. The second is the disciple, and the disciple represents this, earthly priorities. That which we put our hands to that are of this present age, perhaps our sources of joy, our comfort, and our provision. See, the scribe says to Jesus, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And as I read it, I made a joke, but isn't that quite the statement? Wouldn't we love to have that response in any type of evangelistic effort where we present to somebody, hey, this is what is true, and they go, yes, I'm going to go wherever it requires. But that's not, Jesus knew the heart of the individual. We would love to have that type of response, wouldn't we? It's what we hope for. After all, scribes, they were knowledgeable. They were knowledgeable of the Jewish tradition, of the Jewish way, of the law. They were influential within the Jewish community. This guy could have been a great asset to Jesus' ministry. He could have brought some real street cred with the Jewish community to Jesus' ministry. But Jesus, knowing his heart, he cuts to the core of the matter. If you were to look at the Greek and interpret this more literally, which there's many people out there that have done this for you, so you don't need to understand or read Greek in order to do it, but it's an interesting, when you look at the literal translation of the statement of this scribe to Jesus, it's this, teacher, I will follow you wherever you may be going away to. Look at the difference between the two. I will be following you, I will follow you wherever you may be going to. Not I will follow you wherever you go. One is more specific in its intent, the other more broad. Perhaps he had heard Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. We don't know. Perhaps he was just drawn to this new teacher. Perhaps he saw it as an opportunity for himself to boost his reputation. We don't know. We don't know the intent of the scribe. But what we do seem to know is that his enthusiasm, listen, wasn't for the call to discipleship. It was in the moment to go wherever it was that Jesus was intending to go. Interesting, too, regarding this call to discipleship, the scribe approaches Jesus with a traditional scribe address of teacher. And it was customary and common for a scribe to choose their rabbi. Listen to the differentiation. But this, again, we're looking at a new lens. This is a new kingdom. And in the new kingdom, you don't choose, but you are chosen. And it doesn't reflect 
of course, what we know to be true of Jesus when he calls the disciples into following him. So already when we begin to just bore down a little bit, we see that his understanding, and Jesus knew this by just by the statement that he says to him, Jesus knew the heart of the man. This was not one which you chose. This was one which you were called into. And just as it is is important of what you are called into, a new way of life, a new way of living, it was also significant of what we're being called out of, an old way of life, an old way of living. One of previous identifiers, previous belongings, etc., etc. The Christian life of discipleship is a God-initiated call to leave one life and to begin another. That's discipleship in the new kingdom of God. But as I said, Jesus knew that the scribe had not thought out the commitment that was involved in this calling. So Jesus' response is this, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus doesn't mean that he doesn't have anywhere to sleep. Jesus isn't saying that he's got nowhere at the end of the night to go and get comfy with. That's not Jesus' point in saying this. In fact, we know that the disciples had plenty. We know that there was many that were supporting the ministry of Jesus, men and women alike. So what Jesus is not saying is that, listen, if you follow me, it's just going to be a transient lifestyle from one city to another. No, 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 listen, you guys. Jesus was saying this that the world is not your home. Remember, it's earthly identity that Jesus was calling the scribe out of. And he's saying to him, listen, you follow Jesus and all of these things that you have sought after, perhaps identified, have given value and meaning to your life. All of these things, none of them will matter anymore because no longer is your life of this world, but your life is now one. In eternity. And this statement is, you know, the home is where the heart is, right? We know that, that old quote or whatever that is, that saying, well, for a Christian, if the home is where the heart is, our heart is somewhere lodged in eternity. It's fixed in eternity. And the heart speaks of desire, doesn't it? It speaks of intent. It speaks of value. We have to let this sink in. We have to begin to Allow the Lord to reveal the truthfulness of this to us. This, this, this day and age necessitates it, you guys, doesn't it? To live with such a distinctiveness, to live in such a way that, that, that we, 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 we exemplify something that's radically different. And sometimes it necessitates radical choices that we have to make. Jesus didn't come to gain worldly, worldly comfort nor would those who would follow him. To follow Jesus is to be misplaced. To follow Jesus is to be misunderstood. To follow Jesus is to be misrepresented, isn't it? It's to be a sojourner and an exile, as Peter would say. A sojourner and an exile or an alien. Someone that's unknown someone that's different, someone whose culture is completely different. We think, of, we think of the refugee crisis over the last number of years, displaced people, but what, is the, what does the picture show us too? 
people that are living, that have brought something that's completely otherly into a whole different context. And they're living out this culture now in these microcosms of communities oftentimes that represent something of where they've come from or who they are. It's a picture, in a sense, of who we are as well. Sojourners and exiles who is, whose identity is rooted firmly somewhere else. That is what the scribe represents here in Jesus' text in the call to follow him in a new way. The second is the disciple, the disciple, air quotes. This isn't one of the 12, so we read this. Now, it's also common too. It's thought, as I said a moment ago, there was a rather large group, we know that, that followed Jesus around. This was a disciple in the general sense of the word. He's not one who Jesus has called, but he's most likely one of the many that were following Jesus at the time, part of the larger crowd that would follow him. They were disciples in the sense that they were seeking to learn from Jesus, but the validity of their commitment had not yet been tested. And in verse 21, we see, what does this man have? He's got conditions. Old Mr. Strings attached. I'll follow you, but it's not, don't get hung up on what he's asking for. And I'll talk about that more in just a moment. It's the but, you guys. It's the but. How often do we have conditions in our following Jesus? Yes, Lord, I will follow you, but first let me do this. First let me get this degree. First let me just go date this hottie for like six months. First go, not me, but you know. First, first fill in the blank, whatever it is, whatever it is. First let me do this. First let me do this. We love conditions. We love to barter with God, don't we? Yeah, God, but what if I give you this? You give me this? It's like, no. He's about to smack us upside. Put it all down. Put it all down and follow me. Put it all down and follow me. So this disciple, he's a man with conditions. Let me bury my father, he says. Let me bury my father, and then I will follow you. The common misconception here is that this man's father had just died. And this is really interesting. I Honestly, if I'm honest with you, I'd always really just kind of read this text with undergoing like, wow, he's, his dad just died, man. That's hardcore, Jesus. But actually, it's a rather, it's a misconception. And a lot of commentators will tell you that one of the problems is, as we read this from a Western cultural perspective is that what we don't, of course, then have is the Jewish cultural perspective. And within Jewish culture, it was very common that the responsibility of the son was, one, to take care of the father, look after the father, then bury the father once the father passes, and then receive the inheritance that was left for that son. So this isn't just a like, man, my dad's just died. You're really like messed up for asking me to do this. It's most likely what's happening. He's saying, let me fulfill my son's, my, my sonship's requirements within this tradition. And I would go so far to say, of course, and we have to be careful because we don't know the intent of the heart, but I would go as so far to say that, that he probably was thinking about the inheritance that he would left, leave behind. I mean, if we're honest, wouldn't you and I? 
If your dad was like, hey, I'm going to give you a million bucks, but you got to hang around for the next five years, and then someone's like, I want to give you this opportunity, but it starts next week, we'd be going, oh, man, how about I follow you in five years down the road? I'll come and find you. And, I, and he's thinking that, too. This disciple's figuring, I'll just come and find you. Let me do this, and then I will come, and I will find you, and I will follow you. His priorities, they were out of whack. They were rooted in a different kingdom. They were rooted in an earthly desire, in an earthly obligation, and possibly even in an earthly resource. Not that those are even bad in and of themselves. But regardless of what this man's motives were, Jesus cuts to the core of the issue, and he says, when Jesus commands us to follow, when Jesus calls us to follow, when he called you to follow, if we're sitting in this room today, as I look around, I'm pretty certain that everybody here has been called to follow Jesus. When that call was made, that was a call to reprioritize your life and to follow him as primary above everything else. That's hard, you guys. That's hard. I mean, take a moment and let's think about that. Are we living in such a way that we have prioritized the call to follow Jesus above everything else in our life? Or are we living with conditions? Are we doing the yeah, but? The yeah, but, let me do this. Yeah, but, let me just achieve this thing that I want. Hey, I... I put myself right in there with you as well. But these types of things, they necessitate us to consider the cost, what we've been called into. In Luke's parallel account in Luke chapter 9, Jesus encounters a third individual, and this one goes a lot better. He's like really accommodating. He's like super understanding. He's like, oh, yeah. He just No, this guy says, let me go back and say goodbye and bid farewell to my family. And what does Jesus say to him? No one who puts their hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Exactly. Great. Well, I guess I'm out. This is the cost, you guys, that we've been called into. Current cultural liturgy is always looking for the less costly way, the quickest way, Oftentimes, the easiest way or the way that provides the least amount of resistance, isn't it? We're always looking for the quickest way to get up the chain, fastest way for a promotion, quickest way to educate ourselves so we can do X, Y, and Z. That's what culture says. Man, but Jesus says, no. The culture of the kingdom of God, it's long, it's narrow, it's difficult, it's costly, Kingdom's liturgy says, what does it profit a man if he gains the world yet forfeits his soul? Nothing should be before our call to following Jesus. Nothing. 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 Say that with me. Nothing. Lord Jesus, help us by your grace. But I want to say this too, just in the last few minutes that I have this morning. Oftentimes, it's easy, especially when we're looking 
at a book and teaching with this type of lens, it's easy to get stuck in like the cost, the difficulty, the, the grit and the grind you know, of the Christian life. And while it's not always sunshine and roses following Jesus, we know that, right? We would not be preaching the true gospel if we said otherwise. It's also not always rainstorms and cacti. It isn't. And thank God it isn't. To follow Jesus, we know as those who are followers of Jesus Christ, along with the price to follow him, there are great promises to follow Jesus, which is the joy of Christendom, which is the pleasure and the delight of giving up everything, as he calls, because of everything that we received. We were with our leaders yesterday, and we were talking about distinctives of this church, and I said to them, we are a church, and this is who I believe we are, both in our essence of who God's made us, but we're, we're also growing into. We're a church that understands what we have received. And in turn, then the result of that is to, as Jesus would say, give without pay. You gave, you received without payment, now give without pay. We understand what we received. The response to that is to understand now what to give. We know the cost. We know the, the great promises that are ours. And let me just remind you of some of them this morning. I didn't want to leave this today just going like, man, like a tough text. Jesus is saying it's tough stuff. Matt's saying it's black and white. Give up your junk, you know, and follow me and quit acting like a goofball. You can kind of leave here and you just, you feel like, man, can I attain that? Let me say this. Yes, you can by the grace of God. Because scripture is full of men and women who are just like us that did follow God to this degree. And this, again, is the commandment that Jesus gives to us as well. But let me also say this, you guys, and you know this, but I want to remind us of this today as we finish our time in looking here at this portion of the text, that the joy of following God far surpasses the price that it requires of us. The great inheritance, the riches that are ours in Christ Jesus far surpass anything that we would leave behind. And it's the temporal mind fixed on the temporal things that struggles with that. But we need to have our mind and our thinking renewed and changed and transformed and fixed upon eternity where these things grow faint and dim and valueless to us. And we don't then reject it all and live as paupers and transients and, you know, that's not what I'm saying. But then what does that do to these things? It goes, wow. Like, th this is destined to, to burn and to rot and to decay, right? How can I leverage this right now for the kingdom of God? How can I take what I've got here, whatever this is, and make it effective in this day and age for the kingdom of God? So I want to just leave you with these few things here. As I said, it's like, I was thinking too, we can read this and it's like, you got to put this down. You got to lay this down. You need to stop doing that. But I tell you, there's great joy in following God and laying everything down and counting the cost. So I'm going to just give you some scripture this morning and let this prop you up and hold this intention, the promises of God to the price of following Jesus. First Peter 1 tells us that he has granted to us 
his precious and very great promises. He's granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them we may become partakers of the divine nature of Christ Jesus. Matthew eleven twenty eight. Jesus says this, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Promise of God, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. A promise of God. To give to him your yoke, because he's gentle and humble. Philippians 4.19, Paul says this, And this same God who takes care of me, this is Paul speaking, will supply all your needs. Say that with me. All your needs. Say it again. Say all my needs. All my needs. This same God will supply all your needs from his glorious riches, which have been given to us in Christ Jesus. That's a promise you can hold on to. That's a promise that at the end of the day, when all this stuff isn't adding up, where all this stuff seems to be compiling and becoming pressure, you can hang your hat upon that. John 8, 36. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. That's a promise of God. And have we not been set free? We are free indeed. That's a promise. Psalm 86.5, the psalmist says, You, Lord, are forgiving and good and abounding in love to all who call on you. If you're sitting here today, you've called upon him. Your promise is that he's forgiving and good and abounding in love. Romans 8.28, we know this one well. And we know that all things God works for those, for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Again, we have been called according to his purpose. So we can hold to the promise that we know that in all things, God is working for our good. Philippians 4, 6 through 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And what? The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Cast your cares upon him because his peace will guard you and provide for you. That's a promise of God. Do we believe these? Let's believe and let's live as those who have taken hold of these things. Matthew 11, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? And then, of course, as we've already looked in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, following Jesus' exhortment not to be anxious, not to go after the earthly things like the Gentiles do, Jesus says this in verse 33, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things, there it is again, all these things will be given to you as well. And we looked at that text of what all these things are. It's the basic provisions of this life. The things that we need, not worrying about what we eat or what will, what will clothe us, but he's saying, I will care for you. That's a promise of God. So these promises, we hold them in tension to the price, do we not? The price is great, the promises are greater. They simply are. The promises are greater. 
My prayer today is that the Lord Jesus Christ will give us grace to follow him in such a way that we would be disciples, that we would be followers of him who have counted the cost, who understand, whose identity is not wrapped up in earthly things, but it's wrapped up in eternal things, whose priorities aren't specified by earthly standards, but by eternal standards. Father, we come to you today asking, Lord, we need your help in this. Father, in and of ourselves, Lord, we are not capable to live in such a way. And Lord, your scripture and word is clear that this is a commandment to us to be such a people. And Lord, we desire it as well. We desire to live exemplary lives that reflect, Father, your grace and your goodness, your distinctiveness and your character, Lord, to a watching world. But God, again, we need your help. Father, I pray that you would remind us of the empowerment of the Holy Spirit by the grace of God to live this life. I pray, Father, that when it becomes tough, that we would turn to you and to you first and only, Lord God. Lord, I pray that the joy of our salvation would be the banner that we raise in this world, that the promises of God that we cling so desperately to would be the joy of our hearts, Lord, knowing that you have lavished upon us good things in abundance, Lord Jesus. And let the response of our lives and our hearts, Lord, be to in turn give those away, to speak of how great they are. Lord Jesus, let this be a radical community, Lord, of changed lives, of reprioritized lives. Lord God, that speaks boldly and proclaims greatly the gospel of Jesus Christ, the hope of salvation, the joy of our lives, and the hope of eternity, Lord God. Father, would you do this in us? Lord, would you help us in this? Even right now, Lord, we just take a moment. Do inventory, Lord, we pray in our hearts. We know that you will be gentle and kind, Father, with us as you highlight areas. And I just pray, even right this moment, open your hearts up to the Lord Jesus right now. Allow him, as I said, let him do inventory on you. Are there things that still find their existence, their value, their identification here in this earth? And are there things where you've not prioritized the gospel as fully? Perhaps there's things that you've placed before following him. Allow him to show us to us, Lord Jesus. Speak to us, Lord, we pray.